We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities, and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, our host Olivia McKim is interviewing architects Ben McPherson and Natalie DeSisto from Design Inc Adelaide. Ben and Natalie discuss the Wollanda Recreation and Convention Centre in Mount Gambier, South Australia, and how Design Inc undertook and delivered a complex project that required in-depth community consultation on a project that was so important to the community. Let's jump in. My name is Ben McPherson. I'm an associate here at Design Inc. I've been working at Design Inc for 13 years and started here as a graduate. Design Inc, I'll just give a bit of an introduction on Design Inc itself. We're a company that's spread all around Australia. We're all individually owned offices, but trade under the one brand. We focus on social projects. We like community, education, health, that sort of thing. And then, yeah, Nelly, give us an introduction on yourself. Hi, my name's Natalie DeSisto. I'm an architect here at Design Inc. I've been here for a little over seven years and I started as a graduate as well. And both Ben and myself worked on the Wollanda project for quite, uh, a, few, quite, quite yeah, a few years so, together. Yeah, so since what, 2018? Yeah, t- 2018. Yeah. Yeah, so we, re- we won the project in 2018. We documented for what, 18 months or so, nearly two years. Yeah. And went through a number of iterations and stuff with the client, a lot of a lot of stakeholder engagement. And then it was meanwhile I was so I didn't work on the project at that stage. I didn't work during I came on for construction and I was on another project during that stage. And then yeah, mid twenty twenty it went started construction and then that's when I started working yeah, on the amazing. I just finished at the end of last year. Yeah. So I guess the theme of this season is sustainability and that's why we approach you guys and want to get to know you and the Wollanda project. So can you tell us a bit about what the Wollanda Recreation and Convention Centre is and maybe even elaborate on the name of it as well? Okay. So Wollanda itself means enjoy and cherish in the local Bondic language. So that name was given to, voted on by the community well, there was, a, there was a, I think there was a few names thrown up by the community and that name was voted in as the winning name, essentially. So that's the name that all the community embraced, which I think was quite nice. The centre itself, so I'll give you a bit of a background on the, the reason why this project sort of came to fruition when we came in the first place. So I actually grew up in Mount Gambia and that's why that, so this project's kind of a, a little bit special to me in that sense. So growing up in Mount Gambia, there was never an indoor pool in one of the coldest climates in South Australia. So, like, you're doing school swimming lessons in the yeah. in April in an outdoor pool. It's, you know, 8 to 10 degrees outside and all the, te- all the teachers are like, right, jump in and like, no way. <laughs> what a joyous experience. <laughs> so I, I actually, on the back of that, never learned to swim. <laughs> so for about 30-odd years, the community was campaigning to, there was a group in the community campaigning to get an indoor pool in the, in this town. and. So eventually the the community voice got so strong that the council couldn't ignore it any longer and they jumped on board and really dove into a head first, which was fantastic. That's amazing to see that's community-driven as to how this project has come about. It's been like that throughout the whole process, to be honest with you, with our, like, we had huge amounts of community consultation 
whatever. I think Natalie could probably speak to that maybe more because I wasn't involved as such. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how was the beginning of it and how did you guess stick your teeth into it and, and get started? Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to start in 2018 from Project Conception. So there was as Ben mentioned, a bit of a process to get the project up and running with the community. It's the largest project the council and the community have have built, I would, I would yeah, say. Yeah, so it's the um, like, like biggest infrastructure project that the Mount Gambia has ever undertaken. Wow. Yeah, so the um, to get it going, it was, I wouldn't say slow starting, but there was a lot of careful consideration and some background work that we had to do before we could really make a decent start on the design process itself. So our process was very much led by that community engagement and that community ownership. It really drove the success of the outcome and even to the point where there were monthly meetings with our stakeholders, user groups. I think there was something over... 60 user groups and yeah, stakeholders wow. that were yeah. consulted and discussed with during the whole process. So I think, you know, initially what was to be an indoor swimming pool with sporting, indoor sporting facilities to cater to that climate and the wider region, it um it grew from from that to all-inclusive community facility for for sport. You know, it's really a facility for all, for all yeah, parts, yeah. not just focus on the sporting aspect. So having that community engagement early on really steered the brief into what we we see and we get to experience today. And the community are really enjoying it and that's extremely rewarding for us as a team to witness and hear. So the community involvement was really key. And out of that, we understood that they were seeking a community for all, so also all user abilities as well. So there's a, a high focus on DDA access and requirements in the building above and beyond the normal standard. We have a changing places facility as well. So that was in terms of the, the users, that was the focus there. There was really a drive on the aesthetic that embraced that local context. So celebrating that identity and connection to place. And I guess we could go into the materiality a bit later as we go on to this, but that was really key in, you know, driving the the design outcomes and the design narrative was giving the community a facility that was well and truly embedded in their local context. Another desire for them was high quality sustainable outcomes, not in a sense of achieving a certain certification or goal, but they really wanted to integrate sustainable solutions and considerations from materiality all the way through to the facility systems management. So that was something that it was a a really, it was a long process, but we got a lot out of it in terms of how it really informed the brief and the design that, um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess touching on the sustainable aspect of the project, um, can you expand a bit on how it is just more about just picking sustainable materials and maybe about some certain approaches that you took to make this building sort of something that gives back to the community? Yeah. In terms of materiality itself, we wanted to, well, I think it was important to the community as well, but it was also important to us to showcase that local materiality. The local use of limestone is quite used quite heavily throughout the southeast. It's in abundance. It's called the Limestone Coast for a reason. Mm-hmm. So we used the, like the, the 
stone out of local quarries is local craftsmanship. There was a big push. It was actually written into the contract that um, into the building contract that forty percent of the contract had to be basically spent locally. But also we want to showcase and highlight the use of timber throughout the facility as well because there's a big timber industry down there and we sort of want to showcase what could be done with timber. Yeah, amazing. And was it, I guess, obviously really important to use local um, contractors and things like that as well to yeah. keep it keep it homegrown? Uh, that, was, that was essential. That was essential. Yeah. So that's essential for the community to, have, community to have ownership of the project as well. Yeah, really so they feel like they really did contribute to the to the whole lifespan of, of the project. But also, it also upskills all the con- contractors down there as well. Exactly. So they might not have, might not have done something that they or might not have had the opportunity to work on something like that before. So it's mm. that upskilling of local industry. And was yeah. that something of a concern, I guess, in that Mount Gambier hadn't constructed something like that before? So did you struggle to find people with the skill set that you needed to put that together? I was actually speaking to the builder about this yesterday. <laughs> so they really struggled because you got to think this was built during COVID as well. Of course, yeah. And Mount Gambier is very close to the Victorian border. Mm-hmm. They were struggling to get trades across the border during COVID lockdowns and everything. So it was, a, it was actually a bit of a nightmare. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a number of specialist trades like aquatic trades and stuff that Mount Gambia just, they don't have. So yeah. like, they've got to come from interstate. And so, yeah, it was actually a bit of a nightmare for the contractor to manage. Yeah, so a lot and of we research had to, we had to just people and, and adapt then, yeah, working with those, well. those lockdowns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think adaptability was definitely key during a pandemic and border clo- uh, border closures and the like and our systems and um, our approach, we definitely had to be adaptable and collaborative. And I think the, the, the great thing is that in doing that, there was no compromise, especially to these sustainable outcomes because they were... Again, we've got the local materiality, which wasn't impacted or affected by the pandemic, which was excellent. And but then we had the considerations of the, the building systems and the integration beyond the selection of materiality, because yes, we do have the yeah. selection of recycled materials, local materiality, you know, materials where you've got low VOC, which, you know, really should be a standard moving forward. So we've got those types of integration of materiality but also systems we from the early phases we looked at thermal modeling and the ways that we could you know have the efficient envelope that suited the climate as Ben mentioned Mount Gambier being one of the coldest parts of South Australia there's a lot of considerations when it comes to the type of activity that were happening within those spaces so you've got the sporting and the pool but also the way that that envelope could perform so further to that, we had facade engineering, we had condensation assessments to control condensation in the aquatic zone, which was quite interesting, especially when you're looking at those that aren't aware or haven't been to the centre. The aquatic zone itself has a timber structure. We're looking at uh, facade engineering with a timber structure in an aquatic zone and controlling condensation was yeah. Have really done before? Or did you guys have any precedents to, to work off? We didn't ourselves. We worked with a specialist facade engineer, which really assessed us and the, the calculations and the way in which they do things was extremely interesting. So we we really wanted to, we lent on the, I guess, the experts their, their and their expertise. Yeah. 
which was really great. And again, like we, we didn't compromise the, the aesthetic and the outcome or the functionality. So that was a really interesting process with that. And I guess, yeah, also energy efficiency and consumption, working with consultants really early on to establish the goals of of the project. We have a fully electric system and a really interesting one is heat exchange system. So we've got two large volumes that are co-located, one being the aquatic zone and the other the sports zone. So these are large volume spaces, one with air heating and the other cooling. So a really interesting system with the heat exchanges, each space would take advantage of each other's waste energy and use that to support the other. So that was a, a key consideration in the early days where we were doing the spatial planning and the layouts of that. So that's another thing. And I guess also the fact we have a, a solar farm yeah, so we've, all, we've also so to support the fully electric system, we've got a um, we have quite a quite a large roof space, as you can imagine, on this project. So we've got a seven seven hundred and fifty kilowatt solar system on the roof that supports it. And I guess expanding a bit on the location of the site, um, is has it been built? Did it replace the existing facilities, or did you kind of merge a bit of old and new? How did that come about? Yeah, so the site itself is basically right in the middle of Mount Gambier. Uh, it was where the existing outdoor aquatic centre was. So originally they had an outdoor 50-metre pool and then a couple of smaller pools for toddlers and a little learn-to-swim pool. So we decided from the outset that the 50-metre outdoor pool should be maintained. So we were able to maintain that. We maintained the stru- most of the structure of that as well. We just built up the sides to make the pool deeper and compliant for like swimming carnivals and that sort of thing for competition. The rest of it, we're, we're able to utilise a lot of the site for, you know, we've got now four indoor pools, six courts. Yeah. And how did the brief, I guess, grow in that sense? Is it once you started researching what the community needed that drove a lot of decisions about what exactly was going into into this project? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So back on the siding just quickly, yeah. we took over... I think it was three or four of the existing outdoor mm. netball courts and then built on the additional courts to make it six. And then what was, I guess, came out of the community consultation was this wasn't just a sporting facility. We then divided the sporting courts into three compliant competition timber sprung courts. And then the other three were flexible community multi-use that could also be changed into a concert hall. So we had to, you know, consider that level of adaptability while also maintaining the capability for that area to be used for sports. So that layer of adaptability and flexibility into those spaces that were initially just considered for sport, that grew from those community consultation. And then the inclusion of function spaces, youth space, creche space, these additional community offices and meeting rooms yeah and these the list goes on (laughs) and that the ability for these spaces to be used 
for more than one function. So that that flexibility for the community to utilize it across, you know, I think there was the mention of a knitting group that that um, wanted yeah. a space. So about providing spaces that are flexible for everyone. Yeah, it's amazing to see how they guess they came to you wanting just some new courts and a new pool, and then it turned into something that uh, through that like through those what, sixty community. user group and like community yeah. consultation, it just yeah. the project grew. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Away from just this sporting facility that would have ownership by just the sporting facility to a, a really yeah. facility that's owned by the community. It really feels like it's theirs. And yeah. have you been able to get much feedback from the community since the completion of this project? It's funny because throughout the build of this project, it was the project was actually a little bit controversial in terms of the community. Not there, there was. There was a few naysayers in the community who didn't want to spend this amount of money on this sort of facility. Um, but since it's opened, the the feedback from the community has basically been 99% positive. Yeah. Which is and really pleasing to us and that's essentially why we're here. Is yeah. To, and I guess architecture is sort of about promoting change and a new way of thinking about something which other people don't always see. You know, they can't get in your head and understand what it is that you're trying to do. So were there any things that you had to do to try and, I guess, win over some people or just, you know, convince um, stakeholders that what you were doing was going to work? I wouldn't say necessarily win. I think the early phase and getting the project up and running, that key phase, yeah, that, that really, you know, allowed us to continue on with the project. And part of that process was monthly meetings with the key stakeholders. So, you know, there were some heated council meetings of passionate people, but that's that's what you expect. And this is this is their their facility, their ownership. So there were definitely times where there was um, some some passionate conversations. But I think the process of having those regular meetings and the council were really good at being transparent with yeah. the community. I think that's a a really you know something that the council. Um, should be commended on is that their focus was that this is about the community for the community and we worked with them to ensure that every step along the way they were informed and they had a voice. That's really uplifting to see. Yeah, and I think I think the council should actually be commended actually for having the vision and pushing through. Yeah. And like just driving it home. Sorry, you dropped out for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about any, I guess, of your favourite parts of the project or any things that got you really sort of excited to to get you, your hands on and work on? I guess for me, I come from a, quite a, a technical background. So through the like the facade engineering and design, it was actually like, and especially an aquatic environment was actually very technically challenging. So I really enjoyed working through that. I mean, there were a, quite a number of good conversations that we had with the builder and we had to be very collaborative with the builder as well to ensure that the the best outcomes were achieved. Yeah, so I'd say that that's what my key takeaways and favourite thing, but also being from Mount Gambier. Yeah, it's close like, to home. It's close to home. All my family still live there and seeing my family and friends use the facility now is highly rewarding. That's so cool. I think for myself personally, I came on the project as a graduate I had experience on previous projects in the sporting and community sector. So I was quite fortunate to be involved in consultation, coordination with consultants and specialty 
suppliers on these sporting spaces, but also from their working with Ben during construction, that technical overlay in the aquatic space as well. So I really enjoyed moving from a dry dry sport yeah. uh, space into the aquatic space and further developing that technical skill set that I didn't have beforehand. But I'm also extremely passionate about design and the way things go together. So it was a really great opportunity for me. Again, like starting as a graduate, I was given the opportunity to be involved in the team and in the design and all the way through to construction and making you know, decisions with a team, with a contractor to maintain that integrity of the design and, you know, that the client's design narrative, ensuring that was pushed all the way through. So for me, that's extremely rewarding to see that materiality and that design executed, working with the builder, working with the council. And for me, it's a a project that's really close to my heart and I'm really proud to have been part of the team. I guess what I'll say from that with our project team with Natalie and myself and the other Ben that worked on it as well, we all really lent on each other because we all brought different skill sets. So like Natalie was very passionate about the design but maybe not so, didn't have the experience te- technically-wise. Myself, I've come from, like, I've worked on highly technical projects before. I brought that skill set, which I, it was sort of the education, the education was going both ways where Natalie was sort of pushing me to push the design as well and maintain yeah. that. So, yeah, it was, and we learned a lot. We learned yeah. a lot from the other, all three of us that worked on it mainly. It really becomes about teamwork in sort of pulling all together these different skill sets that we all have. Yeah, correct. These things, the great... And we all had skill sets that complemented each other and exactly. helped each other grow, I think. Yeah, and it's being willing to lean on each other as well. To pull oh, definitely. I mean, we had some pretty robust conversations between ourselves at points. <laughs> but also having that rapport with each other to have, be able to have that, those robust conversations and like not take it personally, sort of just, you know, yeah. understand that this is a growth opportunity, the, yeah. the pressures are on on the project. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you're on the same team, so it's a reflection on all you yeah. guys. Yeah. Great. Yeah, there were definitely, as Ben said, there were robust conversations and, you know, working on a project together, Ben Lapino, that um, isn't recording with us today, I worked with him on the project from 2018 and um, when Ben joined us again in construction, it was a quite a decent amount of time to be working together. So, you know, those relationships that you foster it was an environment where it was safe to have those robust conversations because ultimately we were all there for the same outcome and it was really a fantastic team because, you know, ultimately we were all wanting to execute this project for the community and for the users and even, for, you know, Ben McPherson down to his family and friends. So, you know, all having that same goal was excellent and not just between us, you know, us three that were working on it quite intensely towards the end. We've got our greater project team that worked with us through documentation. You know, our, our consultants, our consultants, we had many, even <laughs> even to the point where we had relationships with them that we could have those robust conversations. It's really such a like communication-based sort of exercise. You know, you can have the skills, but if you can't sort of work together with other people, it, it kind of gets a bit lost. Well, it's also that like community. I think it's important to touch on communication there because our consultant team wasn't in Adelaide either. So we had consult our services consultants were in Melbourne, our structural and civil consultants were in and aquatic were in Sydney. 
And then obviously we've got a construction team and our client in Mount Gambia. So communication was a huge, huge key uh, part to this project. Especially during a a lockdown and a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Just to throw an extra spatter in the works. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Were there any, I guess, lessons learned that you guys took away from this, I guess, technically or professionally that stood out to you throughout the lifespan of, of this project? I guess for me... Being able to have difficult conversations, robust conversations, but being collaborative at the same time and really focusing on the desired outcome rather than getting bogged down in details, that's been the biggest lesson learned for me, I think. Because you've got to remember this this project was tended right before the pandemic really hit. So the builder had locked in all their trade prices and all that sort of thing before then. And then... By the time, like there was a long tendering process until a contract was signed, and then the builders obviously then had to retender out all the trade packages throughout the construction phase of the project. So they had a lot of commercial pressures on them. Obviously, while you know during the pandemic, escalations on materiality and labour prices is going through the roof. It was such an unknown period of time and everyone was really just had the same yeah. information and was trying to make decisions. Yeah. So communication was the biggest lesson learned for me, being able to like communicate with all members of the project team and yeah, just making sure you're working to the desired outcome and trying yeah. to achieve what the client, their client's needs are. Yeah, for sure. It's so important to the success of a project. 100%. Yeah. I think for myself personally, lessons learned or, you know, my big takeaways, I had one of the biggest growth periods of my career to date during this project. Um, So the list goes on on lessons learned and takeaways. But for me, I think I'm, you know, passionate about design and also, you know, the integration of specialty consultants and things like that on experience from other projects. But you know, the lesson for me is that there are many things at play when it comes to being in construction, especially through a pandemic. And the way you work as a team to achieve those outcomes as designers, I think we can be quite wedded to a design or a selection or an outcome. And I think, you know, as long as we're maintaining that design narrative and getting the best outcome for the client, you know, that's the goal and that's the thing to be mindful of. And there are some things that, you know, you need to let go. And that was definitely, there were moments where I found that quite difficult. And again, leaning on, (laughs) leaning on my project team that, you know, reminded me that it's all going to be okay. We had some some good conversations about that, didn't we? Um, (laughs) Perspective, because you can get quite right. Exactly. And I think it's, it's made me even, it's made me a better designer and it's made me, you know, you can't sweat the small stuff, which I think we do as designers and architects. We really, we do sweat the small stuff and don't get me wrong. I still do sweat some of the small stuff, but it's been a really valuable lesson on, you know, taking a step back and looking at the overall project and the outcome you're seeking. And yeah, I think holistically there there are too many lessons learned and, (laughs) and takeaways. Um, But I think for, for us, it's really helped us it's been uh, developmental, it's really projected us further than we, we could have imagined. Ben McPherson is a leader in our design 
um, our technical, excuse me, technical excellence working group um, that's fostering, you know, smart design. And I guess, Ben, you yeah, can talk more sort to of, that. Yeah, fostering just better, better technical outcomes throughout the office and stuff. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we have to make these things work in real life, right? Well, that's the thing, right? So I, for me, I find design and construction equally important. So it's it's great to have a design narrative and everything, but if you can't detail it well, you're not going to achieve that. Yeah, and it's allowed me to, I guess, really push, you know, my passion when it comes to design and I'm now part of our design excellence working group in the office. So similar to how our technical excellence, we, we come together and we um, have, you know, studio reviews of, you know, designs and it doesn't matter how big or small the element is. It's that, you know, open forum to talk about design and really push, you know, considered, considered thoughtful designs. It's, it's all about achieving the best outcome for our clients in the end. That's why we're all here. Yeah. You know, they're the ones that bring these projects to us and ask us to make it a reality. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that they're, they're trusting us exactly. to, yeah. you know, bring this vision to life. So, you know, you can't take that lightly. Yeah, and they're spending huge amounts of money to do so. So you've got to really, they've got to trust you and you've just, yeah, you've got to do everything you, you can to bring their vision to life. Exactly. Vision. Yeah. yeah. It's such a, I guess this whole project is such a good testament to communication and leaning on each other for the skills that you need. And just yeah. another, you know, story about how you can't do it all on your own and you need to rope people in and lean on them. Well, I think, I think that's architecture in general. Like yeah. it's, it's not a, it's not something you can work in a solo for. It's, for sure. it's working as a team. It's teamwork. That's, working for other people like a community who are essentially a team. Yeah. And the so, relationships you get out of something like this, you know, can foster, you know, so many things in the future and open up so many doors. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. Amazing. Why don't we touch a little bit about yourselves, I guess, and how you see sustainability working in architecture or the things that you would like to see the industry working towards after doing a project like this? Like, are there any goals that you guys have and would like to see the industry doing better or the things that we could work on? Well, I guess so the AIA has adopted a, a carbon neutral goal for 2030. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff that goes into that. So I guess it's a big checklist. It's a, it's a big checklist <laughs> to, to get through. But more moving forward, this sort of this uh, that that sets the bar of what we want to achieve in the future. And I think the more that we can do now and more that we can do to make standard practice, the better. Like if we go in incremental steps, I, I feel like we'll, we'll never get there. We'll never achieve what we want to achieve. So I think the more we can do at the start, the better. And then obviously, you know, like for instance, if we just talk, like give an example, like technology, like sustainable technologies, for example, the more people embrace them at the start, the cheaper they become, and then the more than grain in society they become. It becomes a new normal. Like, so there's no way, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we would have been able to put a, a 750 kilowatt solar panel system on top of the building. Like, it would have just been too cost prohibitive. But now it's more more of a normalised thing. The, those the economies of scale, uh, it comes down. Yeah, the change is starting to take motion, I guess. Yeah, and, that, and that's again, I think what our industry is about is we're driving that change. I mean, but buildings create have a huge percentage of greenhouse gases of the greenhouse of emissions. So the more that we can do, 
the better, essentially. Yeah, our industry has such a huge impact on the environment. You know, it's more than just putting up pretty buildings, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Considering, you know, the life cycle of a building, you know, the materiality of a building is something that isn't new. But, you know, that that next layer of consideration of, you know, how can we ingrain these ideals to improve their built environment and our impact on climate. And as Ben mentioned, you know, things like the solar panel system and now, you know, that would never have been achievable, I don't know how many like years ago, but even down to the new, you know, Section J assessment requirements and things like that. And it's, you know, at first it can be a little bit uncomfortable and daunting because it's it's new and these assessments that we've never done before. But ultimately it's, you know, about creating more efficient buildings and better performing buildings that you know don't rely on the energy sources like they currently do and it's not just you know resources it's down to you know occupant comfort there's a holistic approach when it comes to sustainability so the more that we you know practice it and adopt it the more accessible and like Ben said more cost effective but it's going to be ingrained and everyone's going to adopt it and we're going to see the outcome of better performing and more comfortable spaces. And we're seeing the likes of, you know, double glazing and triple glazing being more of a standard practice because of these assessments, which is nothing new across across the globe, you know, places like no. Europe. Um, yeah. Know, Australia is probably yeah. 20 years behind yeah, when it comes so, to... Uh, you know, it, it's something <laughs> new, but, you know... The better performing buildings, the way that we design with that consideration, you know, those things are going to become standard and everyone's going to adopt it. And, you know, it may not happen tomorrow, but, you know, I, I guess it starts with us and our industry and adopting those things. So, yeah. Mm. And it's about embracing sort of change, essentially. Like it's doing Absolutely. something differently, which always is a bit scary at first. But yeah, be the leaders in those conversations. I think it's also about you know, as Ben mentioned before, clients are trusting us to bring their vision to life, but also, you know, trusting us with that, with their, you know, financial side of things. It's, you know, buildings aren't cheap and there's a lot of consideration into the financial aspect. And I think sustainability at the moment, the thought is you're adding dollar signs because there are these new requirements, but it also comes down to educating your client and educating them on the benefits that they're going to have long-term, not the upfront costs. So yeah. there's there's that influence that we we have in the conversation piece that we need to have with our clients on that as well. Mm-hmm. And is that something you see sort of architecture being the catalyst for? Is it still leaning on professionals and expertise, you know, in our industry to help us sort of sell that vision? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We I guess we kind of are in the middle of all these different fields and you know our jobs are to tie everything all together yes yeah <laughs> we're definitely the I feel like sometimes we're, <laughs> we're definitely the glue we could either you, can, you know you can either make or break but we are I guess you know central to those you know different disciplines coming together and yeah. you know researching those those different systems with our consultants so it's it's definitely a team effort and it's going to take a team effort to Absolutely. to develop it um, and improve it as we go on. And I guess when you guys decided to get into architecture, was sustainability something on the forefront of your decisions or is it something you just learnt when you were kind of in practice? I know at uni we touch about it a bit as well, but I guess the conversation is changing a lot around it. 
I guess when I went to uni back in the mid-2000s, <laughs> I feel old sitting next to Natalie sometimes. Age <laughs> <laughs> is just the number. <laughs> I mean, it was just sort of, it was just starting to come into conversations. As I mean, it's not why, it's not why I went to uni to become an architect. I went to uni to become an architect because I wanted to, I guess we all have the ideal vision of bettering life for people through buildings. But the, obviously the more we can learn about sustainability, that has a big impact on that as well. I think for myself, I mean, I wanted to become an architect in high school. I had a, you know, not, not necessarily the sustainability side of things, but, you know, I had a passion for, I was really fortunate. My grandfather at a very young age gave me a bow saw and a piece of wood. So I really enjoyed the way things went together and, you know, the art perspective as well was quite creative. That was initially where my my passion came for, you know, pursuing a career in architecture. And then through my studies, we did have, you know, integrated courses where we learn about sustainable systems and we had the the sun shading with the the device in the yeah. book where we learn about having, it. To, having to manually work out the sun shading manually working than, out the sun <laughs> shading which at the time I think I was very good at but they're, they're definitely at university there were conversations about sustainability but not to not to the degree of which the conversations are having now we're having when we're interviewing new graduates or um, speaking to the students at the you know local universities seeing the projects they're working on and the the embedded sustainable approaches and the methodologies of which wasn't wasn't taught when I was at university it's It's just um, becoming ingrained in the way they taught in the way they teach now and it's fantastic it's fantastic to see that it's ingrained in the way they teach and you know as we you know, aim for that carbon neutral goal of 2030 and those bringing those standards into architecture, we should really, you know, be, we should be modelling those things for the students and it's almost like the reverse is happening. Yeah, they've got this knowledge and this passion for sustainability and I guess, you know, that's the fresh thinking that's really, it's needed for that 2030 goal. So for sure, yeah. yeah. So I guess, like you said, like it is more common now and it is going to become the new standard, even with the updating of the, you know, registration competencies, how that's just a a standard in there as well. So I think, you know, we're on the right path. Absolutely. And you, you know, working through a project like Wallanda, all of the, the feasibility, all of the systems and the research we did in the initial stages to to get to where we are, you know, experiencing those spaces, it's, you know, proof in the pudding all of those sustainable integrated systems, you can feel it there as the occupant. So it's, I think for us, even, you know, being architects, you, you think of design and you think of, yes, improving, you know, the way that people live and the way that they, they work, but the comfort level and that environmental experience level is just, you know, heightened with those integrated systems. So it'd be good to see it becoming that standard moving forward. Hmm. And I think it's a really cool thing that the industry can, I guess, put their foot forward and just show the worth of architects in these sorts of decision makings to get these, you know, things to come about. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So I guess now that you've sort of got that project all done and dusted, like what's next for you guys? What are you excited about to be working in the, on in the future? 
I'm still working in Mount Gambia <laughs> at the moment. I'm um, I'm working on a school project there, which is really exciting. And I guess also, you know, being familiar with the climate and things like that has it's been really great to still be able to you know harness those learnings and implement them into a new project and you know have that opportunity to manage a project and the design and consultants and. Yeah, just really, you know, push the learnings of the Wolanda project and implement them into something new. That's that's quite exciting that I'm currently working on. And I think there are so many possibilities now from the the skill set of what what we've learned. It's sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah, I guess for Carrying me, that I'm now. working on a couple of projects that are pretty technically challenging moving forward. And I guess taking the the skill set and the technical knowledge I've learned out of Wolanda, it's really, I guess, fostering the way I think. Also about like about sustainability, about you know the building envelope, air tightness, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's really it's really fostering the way I think. But also the opportunities that are coming for me now through the office to to lead the technical excellence group in the office and really sort of educate the wider office and office and what we do. And this is why we do it and this is how we do it or how we should be doing it, essentially. Yeah, so taking everything you've learned and, yeah, putting it forward to, to what you do next. Well, I was trying to, I was trying to better, better the next generation of architects too. Yeah. Like we're not really here for ourselves. We can be here for ourselves, but I think we should be always trying to better the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's a never-ending learning process, right? Absolutely. And yeah. I think it's also, you know, we're, we're very fortunate with the technology that we have, BIM, and we have these systems that you know, make our life easier when it comes to documenting, but it's also, you know, educating the person driving that system and not letting the system drive us. So when it comes to technical aspects and design aspects, you know, taking a step back from technology and really considering, you know, how things go together, how designs, you know, materiality, textures, how does it impact the design narrative, the community, respecting the local people and having their input and their buy-in. And, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, te- technology is not going to socially improve. No. <laughs> so you need, that, you need that human aspect to it as well. Yeah, sure. Because, I mean, that's another part of sustainability is the social outcomes that you get with it from a community as well. Yeah, and that's something because that, the computer can't spit out for you. No, exactly right. So you need that human aspect and that, I guess, that empathy and that willingness to educate and drive those out drive those outcomes through this these sorts of projects yeah. i think that's the beauty of our industry as well and, and architecture and design is you can just sort of take all these bits and pieces and put them together and you know it's a very organic sort of process and you use you know the tools around you as you need yeah to get the outcome that you need amazing guys well thank you so much for the chat i think we're coming off to our time limit so yeah, thanks again for coming on the hearing architecture podcast and can't wait to see what you guys do next Cool. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's been great. Thank you. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our host, Olivia McKim, and her guests, Ben McPherson and Natalie DeSisto from Design Inc. Adelaide. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about Wollanda Recreation and Convention Centre in Mount Gambier. We look forward to seeing what Design Inc. comes up with next. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. 
If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Olivia McKim and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or any types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.